thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Back Chat, exploring the five pillars of health, thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also your neurology with Dr. Paul Bergamo. Welcome to Back Chat. My name is Paul Bergamo, and it's great to be here on our next podcast. Back Chat is about being your best. It does this by exploring the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also in neurology. Today's Back Chat will cover the pillar of thinking. Our guest today in Back Chat is Anthony Clarica. Anthony is the Director of Elite Performance. He's tra- his training is in psychology and he's worked in education, organizations, and sport for over 25 years. He's developed the Six Star Wellbeing Survey. In sport, he's worked with a wide range of athletes and coaches from juniors to Australian teams in the AFL, with Tennis Australia, and also in motorsports. Such roles have placed him in Olympic stadiums, at centre courts, the MCG on grand final day, and in race cars at high speeds. Presently, Anthony facilitates the leadership culture and mindset program at the Carlton Football Club. Hi, Anthony. How are you going? I'm great. Thanks, Paul. How are you? Very good. Very good. Now... Just thinking back, now, we actually first met when myself and Wayne Swass came down to the Carlton Cafe and met with head of football, Andrew Mackay, and player development manager, Craig Miller, to discuss just the well-being of AFL players. And do you know the one thing that, when we left that catch-up, what Wayne said to me? What was that? He actually felt that he played in the wrong era in the context of uh, what football players get today versus what he sort of experienced when he went through uh, as a player in the 90s and the in the two, 2000s. What's your general thoughts on that one? I know we'll probably talk about that, touch on that later, but uh, can you relate to that? I can, sure. It was a good discussion about well-being on that day and Wayne's comment is probably born out of the evolution of support to players and the consideration of how important well-being is overall for an athlete in general as well as AFL players. And I think it also speaks to the, to the understanding that coaches that work with players have of the whole person being an important component when they're thinking about coaching and performance, not just the athlete. And it's interesting, in your bio, you talk about the six-star wellbeing survey. Can you just flesh that out? What, what, what is that survey? Yes, well, actually, the survey is an evolution of thinking about wellbeing, and it's a, it's a universal screening tool to look at athletes. It covers six areas, mood, resilience, engagement, communication, relaxation, and positivity. So you, well-being is a, is a really difficult area to define, Paul, to be honest, and a number of people have their own definitions of it. But if you encompass those six areas, you, you look at mental health as well as positive and uh, flourishing areas in psychology, positive-type psychology as people refer to it these days, in a proactive sense, not in fixing a problem but in uh, – how you think in a positive fashion to get the most out of yourself and the people around you. The survey looks at those types of things and aims to provide a snapshot of a whole group or team 
in their well-being is defined by those six areas. It's it's kind of fascinating to think it's just not actually just kicking a football nowadays, is it? It's, there's a lot more to the to the package to make an elite AFL footballer. If you really want to get the most out of a person, you need to consider the whole person. You need to consider the environment that they operate in. You need to consider how you work with them. Then you've got a chance to get the most out of them. The, the, the athletes that can just roll up and compete from day one at a high level, they're very, very few. Yeah, wow. Most, most athletes respond to some consistent and effective coaching and organisations invest a lot in their staff to create the environment to maximise their athletes. That's how you get a competitive advantage. It's fascinating. Also for young players, adolescents who are perhaps thinking about forging to AFL careers, it's, it's I guess, nice for them to hear this message as well so that they can understand that it's, you know, it's the whole package, it's the mental well-being, it's all those other those six factors you described as well to um, make themselves the best they possibly can be and thereby increase the chance of them being selected, I suppose. Is that an, an extension of that as well? Yeah, once once you're there, once you're in an AFL environment, um, it's it is cutthroat because you get you get a wide range of experiences and athletes competing against each other. You can get uh, eighteen year olds coming into the system, and they might be competing against thirty year olds who have 12, 13, 14 years of experience. And because the game of AFL, for example, and a lot of other sports for that matter as well. It's an open environment where young people compete, can compete against older people with a lot more experience. You need to try to fast track performance. And uh, sports and sports an environment where you need to help people fast track because it doesn't just wait for the athlete to get up to speed. Yeah. If you wait too long, you're probably out of the system or underperforming, and then then you don't end up having a successful sporting career. Yeah, that's a very honest, authentic answer. Now, back to your career, when we talk about how you got into psychology and why did you choose sports psychology, Anthony? Well, the sports psychology, when I uh, began studying, was in its infancy quite a, quite a while ago now. Uh, so the, the psychology component came from just an interest to work with people. And the, the sports psychology component um, arose because I, I didn't want to work purely on the medical model of psychology, which was to fix problems. And sport really has a, a fantastic preventative approach, uh, which I really appreciated and worked. You can upskill people that don't necessarily have any um, mental health issues. It's looking to maximise performance. So you... So the sports psychology adds a whole nother layer uh, to psychology, as I said, in the preventative area, in upskilling people to maximise performance. And I'd competed in quite a few sports uh, myself as a junior and, and uh, as I was growing up and played football and did track and field and athletics. And so I was around the environment of sport and it, it enables you to work outdoors as well. A lot of the medical profession can get caught indoors uh, when you work in sports psychology, it provides a lot of opportunities when you're working with athletes to perform, such as travel. It's got an international flavour to it. Uh, and as I mentioned, Paul, you can you can work outdoors. So there's a whole gamut of uh, features that attracted me to the sports psychology component. 
And, I, and my understanding is you played AFL, is that correct? Yeah, uh, not, certainly not at the senior level, uh, but you know, I had a few pre-seasons at, at the Hawks with under-19s and played amateur amateur AFL football in the in the VAFA, they call it. Yep. And I, I played one, one game for the Saints in the under-19s as well. So okay. I spent a few years in the development system, I suppose you'd call it, but certainly never never played at the top top level in front of uh, big crowds at the MCG. But still, do you think that's handy if you've had that background in that sort of sense of relatability? Because, I mean, from a, I'd imagine undergraduate psychology, then if you go into sports psychology, there's a fair bit of academia associated with it, but then it's such a practical job, I would imagine. Have you caught upon those sort of um, those times back then for your helping your process as a sports psychologist? I think it has helped me, but... It's not. It's certainly not a prerequisite to have played AFL to work in the AFL whatsoever. Um, it's. I don't. I don't think it's a. It's a prerequisite to have played a top level sport to work with top athletes. But it depends on how you work and what your role as a, as a sports psychologist is with a team. And the way the way I like to work is to integrate with the coaches and the players as much as possible, including out on the training track. And I suppose. Because I've spent years playing footy, um, it's a very comfortable and easy environment for me to be around and uh, and to communicate and connect with the coaches and players. And probably the other thing, Paul, is all coaches actually do a bit of psychology. They, they are psychologists themselves, coaches. Yep. And sports psychologists, when they're really uh, entrenched in their role, um, as I mentioned, out on the training track and at competitions, they're, they're effectively doing a degree of a coaching coaching role because you're looking to maximise the performance of, of the athlete. So I suppose having participated in a lot of sports has helped that. And I think if we, if we look at, say, how this work has changed in the last few decades, and you've been involved in integrating the AFL system for quite a while, not just at Carlton, but... So you've seen players evolve through the 90s, 2000s, and of more recent times. How has it changed from your perspective when you're looking at uh, looking after the, the well-being of some of these players between generations? Well, there's, there's been quite a few changes, and the, the primary change really is back in the 90s when I started working with the AFL, none of the players were full-time. Yeah, right. They yeah. all had yeah. – they all actually had – Full-time jobs. Some of them had part-time jobs, but uh, they they had jobs. We trained in the morning before they went to work, and back in the afternoon when they when they completed work. So it was a part-time football football program, um, which you really had to think on your toes because you had limited time with the players. Um, and the evolution, I suppose, um, is has changed from now that they're clearly full-time. And that's across a number of sports as well. Um, AFL players, thankfully, are able to support themselves from the remuneration they get from sport for it to be full-time. Other sports where athletes, uh, where it's a necessity to train full-time in order to reach the levels you need to, a lot of them are, are not getting paid at all. They get, they get minor sponsorship from governments or sporting bodies or private sponsors to support them on their journey. Um, but certainly the levels and, and um, 
the educational methods, um, the information available to assist performance, the analytics and analysis and data available, they're, they're things that have also evolved tremendously. I actually trained in the same era as Mick Sexton, who played 200 games at Carlton, and uh, his coach at the time was David Parkin, and as we all know. And I remember Mick saying along the lines of how David really encouraged him to do his studies and encouraged others to look at other things next to, say, their football career because there is a timeline with their football career. Do you think that David was ahead of his time in that because that was something which was... Well, also, you know, you go back and say in the noise that's what was happening, but it, it sort of was it something that was it, it happened because that was a circumstance versus perhaps setting setting uh, players up for a career path beyond football. Perhaps two different settings. Do you, do you sort of, you know what I'm sort of saying here? I do, I do. Well, the average career of an AFL player is actually quite short. Uh, it's it's only about four years in the system. Four years. So, wow. Okay. Yep. Some some players obviously play ten years and they have a much higher profile. But many many people who are in the system of AFL, you you wouldn't remember their names because they they only played thirty or forty games over as a set of four year period. So it is extremely important that while they're while they're in the system that that once they leave, they are set up to follow a journey to help them transition into the workforce or into education uh, really smoothly because while everyone would love to be a professional athlete for 10, 15 or 20 years, it's actually very, very rare to be a professional athlete for a longer term. And David Parkin recognised that because he came from an academic background himself and was integrated into the tertiary education system. And so certainly he was ahead of his time and encouraged the players to, to seek study so that it took away a lot of the stress for what you would do after you finished your career. Mind you, it's got another uh, beneficial component, Paul, because it provides a, a balanced person in the sport rather than being overly absorbed uh, in your AFL or whatever other sport you're doing, if your pure, pure and sole focus is um, becomes too obsessive, um, and your headspace becomes unbalanced, then then it can be more difficult to perform as well. So at times, having a thought process around some studies or part-time work or other interest areas beyond your sport can actually help you be a better athlete on the track. I think this is to backtrack. Be curious to know how many hours would an AFL player, on an average, be at the football club in season? So, how many from Monday to Friday are they? Approximately, is there a sort of a ballpark hour hour sort of participation at the club ballpark? Or I'd have to I'd have to go back and have a look at the contact hours. I can't quote a number off the top of my head, but it is a very full time occupation because. Even on a day off, you need to be thinking about what you're eating. You need to be thinking about your recovery. And then as you get closer to a match, you need to be thinking about your preparation. So even when there's no official contact hours, you, you still have a – and you're trying to switch off and, and recover and, as we said, consider other aspects and areas of your life. 
to a degree, you're still thinking about your football. So it's very much a full-time role. Um, and there are a lot of contact hours in the program and hours that you're required to be doing things on your own as an athlete to either recover or prepare for a match. If we spend a bit of time talking about depression and mental health challenges, and this is obviously not just uh, specific to AFL players, it's, it's something which is common in society. What impact do you think having some AFL players publicly be open about their challenges with depression has had in the sort of wider AFL community? I think the, the main consideration for any athlete being public about mental health concerns, that the main consideration is the impact it has back on the person themselves. Um, if that person, any person, feels that being public with regards to a well-being or personal or mental health concern will be beneficial to them, then that, that's great. That's, that's the primary factor for me, if it helps them. If it can relieve pressure off them um, and minimise any pressure building and can attract support for them that they feel empowered with, then it's great to go public. Um, as well as that, in reality, any time a high-profile person, uh, an athlete or a, whether you're an actor for that, for that matter, when they go public on mental health issues, it actually demystifies emotional well-being and mental health issues in the community. And as a society, we need to continue to demystify stigma and concerns around mental health uh, because they're temporary concerns. Most people, men and women of various ages, will have an emotional well-being or stress or mental health issue of some degree in their lifespan. And on that note, um, mental health in the community is most prevalent between the ages of 18 and 35 for men and women. And that's typically overlaps with a professional athlete's career span. So it's certainly not surprising that people in high pressure roles of performance and with public scrutiny would have a mental health concern. Um, and, yeah, if, if we can support them and they feel supported from being public, I think that's great. If they'd like to keep it private and that's going to be of their benefit, then I think we should respect that privacy as well. I think it's, uh, it makes a really relevant point in the sense that it's very case-specific, isn't it? It's uh, every person's different. And I, I dare say the football club gets around the person individually and, and works out the best strategy for them, which is possibly going to be different to the next person. And for some, for some of those players, it's been to make it more public. For others, it obviously is to make it more private. I know that from with Wayne Swasser's work uh, you know, in helping sort of just, de, as you say, demystify or suppress the stigma associated with that's been a good couple of steps for others who are not maybe elite athletes who are sufferers to see that it's not a discriminatory condition. It's one that anyone can be afflicted with uh, at any stage of one's life. If we look at um, psychology and sports psychology and assisting athletes and AFL players, how does how does that come about, Anthony, with the, some of the work you do and some of the work you've seen at, at the elite level? Well, the primary the primary focus uh, 
of psychology and sports psychology uh, is on performance and to assist performance to be able to occur at a higher level in a whole range of different circumstances, uh, which enables an athlete to perform at a, as I said, a consistent level. So that's that's a big factor or feature of sports psychology. Um, as well as that, uh, from a team perspective, working on culture and leadership, which, which are two big areas that I that I work on as well, other than with individuals, is is an important area of focus. And how do you define that? How do you define culture and leadership for those perhaps who may not be? I mean, people know those terms, but in in your setting, how do you sort of describe what that means? Well, I like to keep the definitions fairly straightforward, Paul. Culture is, you could break it down. I mean, you could talk about it for quite a long time, but effectively, it's the environment that you operate in. And with any person at work uh, or an athlete, for that matter as well, to help an individual perform, you need to develop the individual skills and you need to ensure that the environment that they're working in and trying to perform in is conducive to assist and support them to achieve that outcome as well. It's really difficult if you get a person who has a high level of skills but the environment's extremely poor and then doesn't facilitate that person maximising their skills. And most people relate to having a really poor boss or a bad environment when they go to work and no matter how hard you try, that environment can end up um, having a negative impact on you and draining draining you. So effective effective um, environment's really important so you can work on the person and the environment. From the leadership perspective, maximising uh, your own performance and those around you in a, in a team setting is vital as well. It's it's not something that you can do on your own. Uh, it's not just an individual individual sport where you train on your own, you compete as an individual. Um, team team sports, you need to be able to have some leadership to maximise that environment and the performance of individuals around them around you. Can I ask you a question from left field? Can you have successful quiet leaders in a in a in a in an elite AFL team? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of um well I've certainly from practical experiences I, I can think of think of many. Uh, but there's also research that indicates you don't need to be an extroverted or uh, a loud uh, person to be an effective leader. Uh, there's there's a lot of different styles of leadership and I think it's really important to respect the different individual characters that you have in a team whatever that team is whether it's um whether it's the australian soccer team or a or a hockey team uh, or an afl team you'll always have a wide variety of individuals and each of them will influence their peers and teammates around them in a different way and it can be through quiet leadership or, or it could be through being more vocal. And I suppose extending from that, how do coaches and, and other staff deal with many different personalities in a large team group, such as perhaps an AFL squad? Because, you know, you're bringing together, as you described earlier, an 18-year-old with a 30-year-old, an extrovert with an introvert. You've got this amalgam and you've got, a, I mean, the list nowadays of, what, 48 players in a list is... 
Approximately, yeah. Approximately 48 players. So you suddenly, you've got a concoction of different personalities and suddenly, you know, we've got to get the best out of all those in different capacities. How do you guys do it? Well, that's that's where the the culture that I alluded to earlier becomes absolutely vital. Uh, but it's similar to any workplace in reality. It, it is a matter of respect and respecting that not all players are the same and that in reality, I think it's important for teams to have different personalities and different characters. If everyone's the same, it can be a bit bland, um, whereas you can feed off the different characters and uh, personalities within a, within a team environment. So respecting, respecting the variety of individuals and helping everyone maximise their strengths is what you'd look for in any squad. And I dare say thereby you'd sort of have different strategies for those different personalities and, you know, so that it's, it's, I suppose it's, it's like a, in sometimes a clinical setting where you've got a different patient you handle in a different way to the next patient and imagine it's the same sort of way, broadly speaking, how you'd handle things too with different strategies for different personalities. Is, is that how it works from that perspective? Yeah, I think, I think coaches, in the modern era have a lot of education and understanding about emotional intelligence and that they do need to vary how they work with um, one individual compared to another. And coaches across the board are really good at that. And I suppose the, the cultural piece that we spoke about should facilitate respect within the group so that the different personalities actually can work really effectively and harmoniously together. That's often, the challenge. That's the big challenge, indeed. Now, often you, you see in the media discussion about should AFL players be role models? And there's, there's always pro and counter arguments about this sort of topic. Can you give us your thoughts on this particular area, Anthony? Well, by reality, uh, AFL players, or by default, I should say, they are role models. Um, it's not a matter of whether they should or should not be. Uh, that's that's a totally, I think, separate discussion uh, because by default they are. And any public figure with a high profile, I think, has to accept a degree of media and by default of being a role model as well just from the attention that they get. And within the AFL system, players are educated on this process, they're aware of it, and their education often even begins before they arrive at an AFL club, but certainly once in the AFL environment with the media scrutiny uh, that is that surrounds the industry. I, I think, Paul, that there is approximately, uh, might have to do some homework on this, so don't, don't quote me here, but approximately one full-time person working in the media for each AFL player in the system. So you can imagine the amount of scrutiny that's there. Mm. So because of that, all players within each AFL club receive uh, media training and education about how they can best uh, represent themselves and their clubs. And that's, I think that's an important, important part of their integration into the system. And to be honest, AFL players are incredibly generous and mostly incredible with what they give back to the community. But a lot of that work that they do within the community, whether it's to young people, uh, older people, 
uh, supporters of their own or other clubs, uh, people in need. A lot of that work is often unheralded, unheralded and unseen. So the players themselves know about that and the clubs and their peers certainly know about it. Often the public don't get to see that. So I think on the whole that they're very positive role models. It's interesting. I think the, the ratio is higher than that. I think it's more than one-to-one for media to players. I think I've heard different quotes of two-to-one, you know, depending on definitions, I suppose. But And I look, I suppose sometimes the media, when, when there is an indiscretion that does, does happen in football, it's not a, not immune to AFL, it's immune to any organisation. We see it all around the world with indiscretions that, that do happen. We tend to very be pointed about that indiscretion and, you know, behind the scenes, there's, as you say, a lot of work that's been done uh, by those players in different capacities and it's, you know, we just tend to forget if if someone makes an error, you know, and um, it, then it tends to get really highlighted. It, it's, it's kind of interesting how we, the world we live in nowadays with uh, the, I suppose, the pressure that media have to try and develop stories and news breaking stories and all the rest and and the technology we have to be able to get things that are live that can be sent around very quickly, it's its a its a whole different world, I suppose, and hence the football clubs have to be on the front foot to handle this, I dare say, and the AFL is, with regards to what you're saying, where players, before they even come to the club, are, are, are aware what's what's coming, I suppose. Yeah, I think I think on the whole, for, um, for young males, uh, they... they they're outstanding characters and they're extremely generous with what they give back to the community. So how do coaches and other staff deal with the younger generation of players entering, say, professional sport in 2018? It's, and, and how maybe, just as a contrast point, how, how does it handle with someone who's been in the system, say, a decade or so? How, how do the coaches and other staff handle this, the different situations? Well, I think it comes back to what we mentioned earlier about respecting the different personalities. Um, uh, and as well as that, more experienced players, they, they assist, and the staff and coaches as well, they assist younger players to smoothly integrate into the system. They're certainly not uh, operating in isolation, younger and older. Uh, most clubs are really, really good at uh, integrating all of the different ages that they have in their environments. And as I mentioned, the older older players who might be in their late 20s are very proactive in supporting. Um, younger players integrate in assisting their education process. The staff are really good at managing them from a physical sense so that they're not overloaded. And there's a lot of communication that goes around assisting young people. Uh, at times they often get additional support in their early early stages of an AFL environment, whether it's their first or second year, uh, so that they're just they're cared for and uh, are supposed to give them the best opportunity to integrate into the environment, to learn what's required and to perform and give them an opportunity to succeed as a professional athlete. Thank you, Anthony. I think there's certainly been some deep insights about the requirements to enter a, a setting at an elite level, the the extra support structures that are presented, uh, the expectations that are being asked of and, and need to be met. And I, and I feel confident that a lot, lot of young uh, footballers would be perhaps listening to this when they see us promote this as a means of the AFL and getting into the system of the AFL what's required. 
Can you give our listeners on Backchat perhaps three take-home messages uh, about what you've talked about tonight? Yeah, okay. Well, I suppose the, the first the first one is something we've mentioned a couple of times. It's, it's about respect um, of individuals um, and working with the individual and also the environment that they operate in. If you combine uh, both working with an individual and managing the environment, you understand how the, those two uh, operate with each other and how the environment influences an individual and how an individual influences the environment around them. And you can respect that. That's, that's one take-home message for sure, Paul. Um, I think another take-home message would be to make sure that people consider the holistic environment of performance and well-being. It's not a singular thing. It's not a straightforward thing. You need to look at the big picture of well-being in the person. And when you take all that into account, then you can maximise the chance for performance. And I suppose the third take-home message with the full-time environment and the support staff from coaches to player development managers uh, the third, the third point is for players and athletes to make sure that they use a support team to maximise their personal and their sporting performance. I think there's some pearls there, and I can see pearls that can translate into other areas of life, isn't it? Regards mentoring and looking at the holistic elements of one's um, well-being and. And that sort of self-respect, their their criterion that are important, obviously at elite levels, but important in, in other factors of life as well. That's that's fantastic, Anthony. Now, we always ask out the person that we interview uh, a question about themselves, and you know you've worked in settings with the AFL, Tennis Australia, Motorsports. Can you explain now? This is on Backchat. What factors have led you to to be the professional you are as you are today? Well, I suppose because I've been in the industry for quite a long time, you 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 um you end up gathering or collecting a lot of different experiences along the way, and those experiences all add up to help you be the professional you are. Um, certainly, way way back, something that influenced me very early in my career was going to the nineteen eighty eight Olympics in in Seoul in Korea, Paul, and um, that was a great event. It wasn't uh, didn't have quite the security that modern Olympics do. <laughs> and I managed, for example, even at that competition, to get right down to the front row at the start of the Carl Lewis Ben Johnson hundred meter final. And I got there an hour before and watched wow. them arrive on the track and warm up, and and then go and compete in what's become since then a famous race. So yeah, wow. I suppose things like that, going to the pits, um, being in the pits at Bathurst uh, with some great drivers and. Um, other examples like that where I suppose I've been fortunate enough to have been taught by the people I work with, I certainly don't see it as a one-way street. Whenever you have the privilege of working with a sporting person and, and going into the environment that they operate in, you get to learn a lot from them. So so all the athletes I've worked with have certainly contributed um, in a real practical sense to my, to my education. I suppose the last couple of years, um, the last couple of years working at the Blues, um, the first the first Blues win on the road against Fremantle last year with Brendan yeah. Bolton as the coach was really exciting for all the players and all the new coaching staff, and that was 
that was certainly something to behold as well. That's fantastic. And I wonder, you know, between different things like motorsports to tennis to AFL, are there common threads that have transferred or is there... Are they sort of being sort of sport-specific? Because, I mean, especially motorsport versus, say, AFL, are there still common threads that you've taken from your sports psychology perspective in your, in your, your development? Yeah, I think if you reflect on those three take-home messages, they're, they're fairly generic and common across sports where you, you work with the person and the environment. You understand the interplay between those two. Um, Understanding the importance of a support team in highly competitive environments, um, it's it's not that easy to be successful as an athlete. You, you need to be able to maximise everything around you. They're they're the common elements, and I suppose each sport certainly has their own individual unique characteristics that you learn along the way once you're there. Fantastic. So as you said, you facilitate you currently facilitate the leadership. Culture and Mindset Program at the, at the Carlton Football Club. And if anyone's interested further, Carlton, you can go to their website, www.carltonfc.com.au. Thank you so much, Anthony, for joining us tonight. Thank you, Paul. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Backchat. To stay abreast with updates with Backchat, please go to our Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash Backchat Podcast. All relevant website links of today's podcast will be on our Backchat Podcast Facebook page. If you like the show, please take a please leave a five star rating on iTunes. We leave you with one thought: be the best at what you do, and you will grow and inspire others around you. Look forward to catching up with you on our next Back Chat podcast. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.